We'll turn this morning in your Bibles to John chapter 12. Fourth gospel in the New Testament. John at chapter 12 as we look forward to the celebration of Easter. want to spend a few uh, weeks in some of these passages in John that focus in particularly on our Lord's work on our behalf. So John chapter 12 this morning, and I will read verses 20 through 36. John chapter 12 and beginning at verse 20. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. But Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. The crowd spoke up. We have heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Then Jesus told them, you are going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the light, excuse me, in the dark does not know where they are going. Believe in the light while you have the light, so that you may become children of light. When he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray for his help. Father in heaven... We've read already in this passage of light. So Lord, teach us. You be our light today. Enlighten our eyes. Give us attentive uh, minds and bodies. Give us energy. Help us to be awake and alert to hear your voice speaking in the scripture. To know your love for our souls. To know the call that you would give us. To see, uh, to be able to focus on what you have done on our behalf and give glory to you for it. And, And form in us. The life of Christ. We, we long to be like you. So use your word to form us into that image. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Throughout John's gospel, you heard the language even in this passage, Jesus refers a few times to his hour. And leading up to this passage, he often says, This hour has not yet come. When Mary tells Jesus at the wedding in Cana that they have run out of wine, he says, my hour has not yet come. 
When some people in the temple courts try to seize him, they are unsuccessful because his hour had not yet come. And the same comment is made on another occasion where once again people in the temple court try to seize or arrest Jesus. And you get the impression that some time of danger is coming. The author of the gospel is setting us up to be thinking about the cross. This time of danger when people will seize Jesus and harm him. The further you read in John's gospel, the closer you get to that time. Well, in the passage we've read today, that time has come. Jesus says in verse 23, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then Jesus goes on to discuss the necessity of his death and the kind of death he will die. So we start to understand that Jesus' glory will come about because of this hour of suffering that he will endure. But while the onset of that hour may trouble Jesus' soul, yet he will face this darkness in order to bring glory to the Father and light and life to his people. And so as we move closer to the celebration of Easter, only about three weeks away at this point, I want us to look at this passage today in order to gain a fresh appreciation for Christ's work on our behalf and to be drawn to follow and serve him with our lives. And so as we'll see in this passage, Jesus faced great darkness so that we might escape the darkness, so that we might become people of the light. And in that light, we find our true life. So let's look at the passage together today, which teaches that Jesus endured our darkness so that we can live in the light. And I want us to look at that idea, develop that idea by asking two questions. First, what did Jesus endure for us? Well, we'll see that as we go throughout this story. And the whole passage today is triggered by this request from some Greeks to visit Jesus. We read in verse 20, there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. Now, the festival is a reference to Passover. John's gospel includes several times when Jesus went and observed the festival of Passover. Here we read there are some Greeks there as well in Jerusalem. And so these would probably be what we call God-fearers. These are Gentiles like Cornelius who are drawn to the Jewish faith, or they're friendly to the Jewish faith. They even worship Israel's God, but they're not full converts. And so here these Greeks have come to celebrate Passover, and now that they're in Jerusalem, they would like to meet Jesus. Of course, we may wonder, well, how do they know about Jesus? Well, in the timeline of the Gospels, this request follows the triumphal entry and the cleansing of the temple. And you may recall that when Jesus cleansed the temple, he made that comment, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. And likely when Jesus cleansed the court, the area that he cleansed, where he threw out the money changers, was the court of the Gentiles. So perhaps these Gentiles who had been confined to that court, but have now regained their access to that area, well, maybe they're intrigued by Jesus' words. They're interested in the one who says, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. What kind of person does and says such a thing? We, as Gentiles, want to meet him. 
And so they approach Philip, interestingly, a Jew, but with a Greek name. And they make the request, sir, we would like to see Jesus. And so Philip goes and gets Andrew, and together they communicate this request to Jesus. Now here's where the story gets somewhat interesting. And this happens more than once in John. Jesus does not directly respond to their address. In fact, the Greeks are never mentioned again in this passage. They all but disappear. Now, is it possible that John has just compressed the narrative? Maybe the Greeks are granted an audience. They're part of the crowd that is present later in the passage, possibly. But John never gives us the explicit answer to this request. What he does give us is Jesus' statement in verse 23. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Finally, this hour that Jesus has been anticipating throughout John's gospel has come. And it is the hour in which he will be glorified. When Jesus did that first miracle at Cana, when he turned the water into wine, John described it as the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. Jesus, throughout John, has been revealing his glory. And what is his glory? It's his nature, who he truly is, which is full of grace and truth. And the more you read into John's gospel, the more that glory is progressively revealed, and it is going to come to a culmination now that his hour has come. But what act will bring Jesus supreme glory? He describes it in verse 24. Truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. So Jesus' death is the hour that has come. And that is the means by which he will be glorified. Jesus' hour of suffering and his time of glorification are the same. And notice that Jesus describes himself as the Son of Man. We've driven attention to that title often. It's rooted in the Old Testament, particularly Daniel 7. The whole chapter is really worth your reading. Where this Son of Man receives universal authority. He receives glory. But he also identifies with God's suffering people. Well, John, in the light of Jesus, can spell it out for us. This Son of Man will first suffer and then be glorified. And that suffering will include death. Only in that way can one seed produce a plentiful harvest. Now, in the next verses, the verses that immediately follow, Jesus transitions into declaring that his followers must be prepared to walk the same path. I want to save those verses for the second idea. I want want to package all of Jesus' demands for discipleship under one heading. So for now, look ahead to verse 27, where Jesus describes his reaction to the coming of his hour of suffering. He says, now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, no. It was for this very reason that I came to this hour. Those words sound a lot like Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, do they not? His, his soul is troubled, 
And yet he is resolute. He will do the Father's will. That, after all, is the very reason, the whole reason he came to earth in the first place. And as we consider last week in John 6, what is the Father's will? That he should lose none of all those the Father has given him, but raise them up at the last day. In order to do that, Jesus first goes through death to secure them and is raised up himself. And by the way, Jesus' words also sound a lot like Psalm 6. Listen to David's words there. My soul is in deep anguish. How long, Lord, how long? Turn, Lord, and deliver me. Save me because of your unfailing love. Among the dead, no one proclaims your name. Who praises you from the grave? And when we read language like that in the Old Testament, I think sometimes we're troubled, like, oh, they imagine the grave is the end. Did they not know or believe in life after death? They're reflecting that perspective on creation that views death as a great enemy. Death is a foreign invader that ruins God's good creation. Death is a problem. And only God can deliver his people from such a threat. But Jesus knows from reading his Bible that if he commits his soul to God as a righteous sufferer, then God will vindicate him by raising him from the dead. And so he moves forward into the hour of darkness and death, doing the Father's will on our behalf, because that is the path that leads to light and life. And that prayer then provides an opportunity for Jesus to go deeper into his explanation of what his hour will entail and what it will produce. So after that prayer, Father, glorify your name, a voice from heaven answers in verse 28, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. A voice speaking words of approval from heaven reminds us, doesn't it, of Jesus' baptism and the transfiguration. Here it's the same message in John. The Father affirms his purpose to glorify himself through Jesus' obedience. And interestingly, the crowd doesn't seem to hear the voice properly. Some hear thunder. Others say an angel has spoken to Jesus, so maybe they heard words or they heard a sound, and that's how they interpret it. They're not comprehending exactly what's being said. But nonetheless, Jesus says in verse 30, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now, how can a voice benefit people? When they don't understand the words. Because the voice, understood or not, is a sign, a sign from heaven that's significant, supernatural events are about to happen. God himself is kind of invading the creation to say, you need to pay attention. Something is about to happen. Well, what is that? We don't want to miss the, we don't want to read this sign wrongly. Well, Jesus spells it out in verse 31. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. Jesus announces, you know what that thunder means? It means that the time has come for the world to be judged. And when we hear that language, we, we may think of the inhabitants of the world being punished, the great judgment of God. But Jesus defines the judgment on the world with the phrase, now the prince of this world will be driven out. 
So instead of punishing the world's inhabitants, Jesus exercises judgment on Satan, the one who tempted humans to sin in the first place. That is where the judgment of God will fall in this hour. And it's really interesting, Jesus' language. When you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it feels like Jesus is throwing out demons all the time, doesn't it? Or his disciples are trying to throw out demons. Well, in John, we don't have any stories of Jesus casting out demons. But John does give us one exorcism, the exorcism, you might say, right here, in which the prince of this world is driven out, or we could translate it, cast out. It says one author writes, the coming of Jesus' hour, his crucifixion, death, resurrection, and exaltation of the Father, it marks the end of Satan's domain and brings about his defeat. Jesus going to the cross will accomplish a decisive defeat of Satan and his purposes, his plans, and his power. And I know, again, this is one of those ones where sometimes we wonder, does my experience match up with what Jesus is saying here? There's even other scriptures that make us wonder, okay, just how defeated is Satan? I mean, even at the end of Romans, Paul promises God will soon crush Satan under your feet. There is a sense in which we're still waiting for the final results of this exorcism. But friends, please don't put it all in the future. Satan's defeat has been definitively accomplished. He has been bound so that he may no longer deceive the nations. And that is so that Jesus may then reap the benefits of his finished work, which are described in verse 32. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And just in case we needed it, John tells us in verse 33, he said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. When Jesus is lifted up, that is, when he is crucified, that death will break Satan's power. And the result will be Jesus drawing all the nations to himself. And Jesus has been anticipating this all the way back at the beginning of the gospel. Remember John 3 where he said, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. So I said earlier that Jesus doesn't respond directly to the Greeks who want to see him, but maybe... This is his answer. Some Greeks want to see him? Oh, trust me, Jesus says. All the nations will want to see me when I am lifted up. I will purchase with my blood people from every tribe and language and people group and nation, and I will make them kings and priests who will serve God and reign on the earth. That's the language of Revelation. From all the nations on earth, Jesus will create a new humanity. And this new humanity will fulfill God's original purpose for his creation. 
This new humanity will be delivered from Satan's bondage, transformed into the image of their God, and freed to serve their creator. That's, by the way, what life is all about. That's your vocation. Wherever you live, however you work, at whatever age or station God has you in, that's your vocation, to bear his image to the world. And it's so ironic, by the way, that right after the triumphal entry, it's in the verse right before today's passage, the Pharisees feared the whole world has gone after him. Well, that is what Jesus is able to do because he has judged the ruler of this world who would keep the nations in darkness. I mean, the Pharisees didn't meet it in a good way, but John does a little double meaning that way throughout his gospel. Oh, you think the whole world's going after him? Let me show you exactly what that means. He will draw all the nations to himself. And as I've already said, we, we can participate in that work by following Jesus, bearing light to others, that he is the way to life. And so let's consider that then as the other thought today. How can we follow Jesus? The crowd, interestingly, they don't always understand Jesus. But this time they do. They, they seem to grasp the significance of his reference to being lifted up, that it's a reference to his death. And they ask in verse 34, the crowd spoke up, we have heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? The crowd seems to have some understanding that the description Son of Man is related to a claim to be the Messiah. But their understanding of the Messiah is that he will live forever. And there's some Old Testament scriptures that would encourage that kind of thinking. But how then can the Son of Man, or how can the Messiah, die before being glorified? Once again, Jesus does not give them a direct answer. Instead, he says in verses 35 to 36, You are going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they are going. Believe in the light while you have the light, so that you may become children of light. If you have questions, Jesus says, follow me. I am the light. I will enlighten you. you just, as we said last week, you got to reach the point where you follow me and then you'll be able to see. I am the light by which you see everything else. So believe in the light while you have the light. You know, the darkness is all around you. It threatens to overtake you. You only have this opportunity, Jesus says to the crowd, to follow me. So come, follow down this path of light. If you do, you yourselves will become people of light. That is, people who are characterized by light. Are you done with darkness? Are you tired of darkness and the way it treats you? Then follow Jesus and he will give you light. In him you will become yourself a child of the light. That is the answer Jesus gives when they ask about the Son of Man. But when I say that Jesus doesn't give them a direct answer, maybe, just maybe, once again, that's because he's anticipated and answered the question already. Go back one more time to verse 24, where Jesus said, Very truly I tell you, Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. How can the Son of Man be lifted up? How can he die? 
but also live forever? Because God is going to raise him from the dead. Jesus will walk the path of darkness, even unto death, and God will give him light. And now he summons us to follow him down that road. He says in verses 25 to 26, these are the verses we skipped earlier, anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. See that dying kernel of wheat? That's what Jesus will do, and that's what his disciples must do. And Jesus here defines the terms of discipleship in terms of hating one's life. And we we see that language in other passages, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's the idea, we have love versus hatred as a way of expressing fundamental preference. So at the end of the day, ultimately, when when you look at your life, what do you want? Do you want to hold on to your life now Do you want to make all your own decisions, do all the things that feel good now, or do you want to gain eternal life? What is your ultimate, fundamental preference? And when Jesus says, hate your life, he's not talking about how you need to hate yourself or that it's wrong to ever have desires, plans, wishes, dreams. That's not what Jesus is saying. But he is saying, who gets to be Lord of those? Who gets to be sovereign over those? Who do you submit them to? And through whose truth and especially values do you filter them through? That's why Jesus says in order to gain eternal life, you have to serve Jesus. And he describes that as following him. And so one author writes, serving Jesus involves imitating his behavior. Doing what he did by serving others. In the very next chapter, you'll have Jesus washing the disciples' feet. That's what he's getting at when he says, hate your life in order to follow me. Do you want to love the values of this world and what this world values and all of its chaos and all of its disruption and all of its sin and darkness? Or do you want to love the values that I'm showing you and the values that I'm embodying in front of you and that I'm teaching you to love and serve one another and to do the Father's will? What's your preference? What do you want out of life. And Jesus says, if you follow me, you'll have to have every aspect of your life shaped by my commands, my values, my virtues, my example. But the good news, Jesus says, is if you do that, you'll gain your life. And as you walk down that path, he says, I will be with you. Where I am, there you will be also. We will be with Jesus and he will be with us. So no matter how dark, No matter how hard or no matter how long the path, Jesus will be there. And just as the Father glorified the Son by raising him from the dead, Jesus says, so the Father will honor those who serve the Son. He gives life to the Son. He gives life and light to those who follow the Son. Jesus endured that darkness so that we can live in the light. So, are you following him? And that is an invitation to those who have not yet begun the journey. If you haven't started that journey, come and see how good Jesus is. But it's also an invitation to those who have already started down the path. Maybe you've been on this path for years. The invitation is keep seeking him. 
You stay on that path no matter how dark it may be. Maybe one day, if you're going through a dark time, you'll be able to turn around and look and see how God took care of you. How God brought you through a winding, dark valley. So follow him no matter how hard. Follow him no matter the sacrifice. Maybe sometimes we just don't want to do the things that Jesus commands. Maybe, you know, why does Jesus always have to be right? Maybe we feel that. Why does it take the sacrifice it does? Because he's Lord. And that's the good way. We're deceiving ourselves when we think our own wisdom and our own instincts are the best. So maybe we're afraid of what we might have to sacrifice or what we may lose. But again, better to lose it now and to gain more in eternity. So love that light more than darkness and know that following Jesus leads to life and light. So let's pray for God's help to do that. Father in heaven, we do thank you for the Son and that you glorified him by raising him from the dead. Thank you that when his soul was troubled, he was resolute to follow you. And so help us to do that as well. Forgive us of our sins. For us when we don't follow you. We don't want to go your way. We want to give in to what we think is good and wise. Lord, forgive us and make us wise in the path that leads to life by sitting in your light and listening to you. So again, thank you for Jesus the Lord, his great grace, the kernel of wheat that died and is now producing many seeds from all the nations. Thank you for his triumph and help us to lift you up, so to speak, to proclaim you as the one who was first lifted up for us, that all might see and know that life is in him. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.